0: One of the reasons Paul wrote this letter to the Corinthians is because there were problems to confront. In chapter 5, our text today, Paul turns from one problem, which was prideful division, to another problem. The problem here is a case of sexual immorality that had become a church-wide scandal in Corinth. And... As we'll see, while it is a problem with one man, it is also, and more significantly, a problem with the entire local church in Corinth. Now, if you'll remember, with the last concern, Paul spent nearly four chapters addressing it. But this time, in just one chapter, Paul will diagnose prescribe a remedy, and close this case. All in chapter 5. And Lord willing, we'll get through all of it today. And Lord willing, we'll take from it what God wants us to take from it. Which I think is this. Paul's prescription here is one of the most necessary and yet neglected practices in churches today. I'll say that one more time. The prescription that Paul is going to give here in this text is one of the most important, one of the most necessary practices in the church today, but it is also one of the most neglected practices in the church today. It is on the topic of what the church has historically called church discipline. The Belgic Confession, which was written in the 1500s in Article 29, they define biblically what are the marks of a true church. In other words, how do you know what a real true church is? How do you know when you're looking for a church or if you're in a church if it's a true church the bible talks about false churches so you want to be in a in a real church you want to be in a church that honors god in a true church so in that confession they said there are three biblical marks of a true church number one the preaching of the gospel if there's no preaching of the gospel it's not a true church number two The proper administration of baptism and communion. If they're not practicing communion and baptism biblically, then it's not a true church. And third, on this very short list, is they must practice church discipline. I think that surprises a lot of people today. I think a lot of modern Christians would disagree with that. But they were right on. And we'll see why in Paul's words today. How important it is that a local church understand and practice church discipline. It's of course an uncomfortable topic. We obviously, as always, need to pray before moving forward because this is God's word that we're studying. And so if we're going to study God's word, we need God's help to understand and apply this truth. Please bow your heads with me. Father in heaven, as we listen to this sermon, we ask that you would enlarge our minds with truth. That you would enlarge our hearts with affection. And that you would embolden our wills to love and obey you. In Jesus name, amen. Open your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 5. If you are using one of our church Bibles, which you're free to take with you. If you don't own your own Bible, you'll find today's text on page 620. It's already quieter in this service than it normally is. (laughs) Just an observation. There are basically two parts to this chapter. Chapter 5 of 1 Corinthians, there's basically two parts. The problem and the prescription, or the problem and the punishment. The problem is identified in verses 1 through 2. And then the punishment is prescribed in verses 3 through 13, along with a rationale for that punishment and a clarification. So look with me at verses 1 through 2, and let's begin with the problem. Paul identifies it here. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that is not Tolerated even among pagans, for a man has his father's wife, and you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? There's the problem. A second negative report has reached Paul in Ephesus, where he is writing from. The first report, you'll remember, was from Chloe's household in chapter 1, verse 11, and described the fighting. And the division that was taking place in Corinth, which Paul has spent most of the last four chapters addressing. And now in chapter five, he turns his attention to this problem. It is actually reported, Paul writes, that there is sexual immorality among you. This is the first part of the problem sexual immorality among the Corinthians. Not out of the church, but in the church. This isn't a problem outside the church. This is a problem inside the church. This is not sexual immorality around them. He said it is sexual immorality among them. So the Greek word used here, it's one word for sexual immorality is "porneia," from which we get English words like pornography in its broadest sense, it refers to any sexual activity that is not between one man and one woman within the covenant of marriage. Sexual immorality, in its broadest sense, is any sexual activity that is not between one man and one woman within the covenant of marriage. Sex is not only permitted by God, but it is commanded by God and encouraged between one man and one woman who are married to one another. And everything else is sexual immorality. Everything outside that is sexual immorality. From premarital sex, to incest, to polygamy, to adultery, to... Homosexual activity to pornography and masturbation and so on. So there was sexual immorality among the Corinthians. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you. And here's the first thing he says about it. Of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans. Paul is saying, in other words, even unbelievers would not tolerate this kind of sexual immorality. Even unbelievers would object to this. And what is it? Look with me. For a man has his father's wife. Well, my father's Wife by God's grace was my mom. But Paul does not say, for a man has his mother. This is another way of saying that this man is in a relationship with his stepmother. Whether or not his father is still alive, we don't know. But this is his stepmother. And this man had, the text says, his stepmother. He had his stepmother, which refers to and means that he had an ongoing sexual relationship with his stepmom. So, as I said before, that is the first part of the problem that Paul is addressing, and it is bad. But the second part of the problem is even worse, it's even worse. And it has to do with how the church was responding to this man's sin. That's really the issue that Paul is confronting here. Verse 2. And you are arrogant. There's this man in their church. With an ongoing sexual relationship with his stepmother. And you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? So instead of mourning. Mourning. Or instead of grieving over this sin, they were arrogant about it. They were, they were boasting. They were bragging about this man's sin. How is that possible? How is that even possible that they, they were arrogant and boasting or bragging over this man's sin? In what way is a good question in what way was this church being arrogant in response to this man's sin? I think this was probably something similar to what we sadly see in many liberal churches today. It was a boasting intolerance. It was a boasting intolerance many Many so-called churches today are unfortunately interested in who can be the most inclusive and who can be the most tolerant. The rationale behind that is that God is good. And that God is loving. And he extends grace to sinners. Therefore, who are we to judge or exclude anyone? That's the rationale. We know that already in the first century, as Paul writes, people were twisting grace and using it as a license to sin. God is so good and He's so gracious that we can live however we want to live. I mean, it only magnifies His grace and goodness. Like, the more sinful we are, the more God's grace and forgiveness is highlighted. was actually a thinking that was going around. God will forgive all sin. Therefore, Romans 6, 1. Let us sin that grace may abound. Paul had to tell the Galatians in chapter 5, verse 13. You were called to freedom, brothers, only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. But through love serve one another. And some, even in Corinth, and obviously here, but some in Corinth, We're misunderstanding grace and we're saying things like all things are lawful for me. And Paul quotes them twice in this letter, saying all things are lawful for me. So in this church, picture this. They had this guy in their church who had hooked up with his stepmom and they were bragging about what a tolerant church they were. This is the kind of place that will always support you. This is the kind of place where if something makes you happy and as long as no one else is hurt by it, who are we to say anything? This is the kind of church that will never point a finger. This is the kind of church that will never judge you. That is a common mantra in many churches and it sounds loving and it's actually hateful. It's hateful, poisonous talk. And we'll see why. So that's the problem. Not just that there was an unrepentant man in the church, but that no one was confronting him. Rather, they were celebrating the fact that they were the kind of church that, in the name of Jesus, tolerated open sin. And that's terrible. And so next, Paul prescribes a punishment. He gives them a directive, a course of action here. That must be taken. And it is the opposite of toleration. It is actually the exact opposite of toleration. And it begins in the last part of verse 2. Here it is. Let him who has done this be removed from among you. Let him who has done this be removed from among you. I wonder if you have heard the term excommunication. It's part of a larger teaching in the Bible on church discipline. This is referring to excommunication. And it is one of the most necessary and neglected of church practices today. It is something that every local church must be willing to do, but it rarely is. But it is something that every local church must be committed to, must be ready for. So that said, we will come back to that. And what Paul is saying here about removing this man from the church, what he is saying about excommunication but but this verse could be and often has been very easily misunderstood or misapplied Paul is talking about something here that is described throughout scripture including from the mouth of Jesus himself and so we need to go to other places in the Bible to make sure that we understand this essential mark of a true church Paul introduces this long-overdue punishment here in verse 2, which we've already read. Let him who has done this be removed from among you. At the end of verse 13, he'll put it this way, purge the evil person from among you. So put those two verses together, verse 2 and verse 13, and you see that twice Paul says, from among you. You see that in verse 2 and in verse 13? From among. Among you. What this means is that. This man was a member of the church. He was among them. This was his church family. This was his church home. He was not merely a sporadic attendee. He was not a peripheral participant. He was among them. He was among them. He was a Fellow Christian, in other words, he was a brother in Christ. He was outwardly committed to Christ and he was committed to this body of people, to this local church. And yet, he was not living the life of a Christian. He was not living the life of a Christian, and therefore, he needed to be removed he needed to be purged so this is important paul is not saying that the corinthians needed to cut themselves off from everyone who is sexually immoral but rather the corinthians need to cut themselves off from professing christians Who persist in sexual immorality. In fact, this is the very clarification that Paul makes down in verses 9 through 13. So here's his clarification with this punishment. Look at verses 9 through 13 with me. Verse 9 I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. So Paul is referring to an earlier letter that he wrote to the Corinthians. It's not a letter that we have a copy of. But apparently he addressed this issue then and he told them not to associate with sexually immoral people. But now he's making a clarification in verses 10 and following about which sexually immoral people Christians are not to associate with. Because there's a lot of them. There's a lot of them. There still is today, isn't there? That we're being told not to be around, to cut ourselves off from those who are sexually immoral. In order to really do that, you'd have to go to the moon. We're surrounded by people who are sexually immoral. So he's making a clarification here. Verse 10. Not at all meaning... The sexually immoral of this world or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters. Since then, you would need to go out of the world. That's the point he makes. Verse 11. But now, here's what he is saying. I am writing to you not to associate with who? With anyone who bears the name of brother. If he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed. Or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard or swindler. Not even to eat with such a one. It could be any of those unrepentant sins, actually. Here's what Paul is saying. The reason you are to avoid this man is not because he is sexually immoral. The reason you are to avoid this guy is because he is sexually immoral and calls himself a Christian. That's the important distinction. That's the clarification Paul makes. He is unrepentant, and yet, what are Paul's words? He bears the name of brother. The NASB calls him a so-called brother. The NIV says he claims to be a brother. John Owen would have referred to him as a mere professor of faith. All talk. This guy is in your church. Paul is saying, Bearing the name of Christ. And that's the problem. And Paul goes on with more clarification in verses 12 and 13. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. That is really good for us to hear, isn't it? I wonder how many times you have found that either you or other Christians really misunderstand what our responsibility to judge is as Christians. And often we get it completely wrong. We judge those outside the church and fail to judge those inside. The exact opposite of what Paul is talking about. We slander The sinner out there. And protect. The unrepentant sinner in here. That's terrible. And Paul's making a clarification here in these verses. He is saying this. Don't judge those outside the church. Listen Christians. Do not judge those outside the church. They do not know Christ, let me ask you something. What would you be doing right now if you didn't know Christ? Probably something much worse than the problem of the person you're judging. Probably something even worse. You and I know that any good in us, that we are who we are because of, alone, the grace of God. It's nothing good in us or nothing good because of us. It is solely Attributed to the grace of God. So where would I be without Christ? And yet I can be tempted as a Christian to still judge or slander those outside the church. But then Paul says. But do. Judge those inside the church. Do judge those inside the church. That means consider their behavior. Render judgments and call them out. Consider. Look around your church. Your brothers and your sisters. And consider their behavior. You see what they do. You hear what they say. You watch how they interact with their children. You see them in the city. Maybe you see them at work. You're to consider their behavior. And sometimes you need to render judgments. And call them out. It's very important, Paul says. Okay, so that's the who. Paul is talking about. Let's go back up to verses three through five. That's who is being confronted here. Verses three and through five is just one long sentence where Paul practically lays out how this is to be done. Here is the punishment. We'll see next here in verse three and four. We'll see the when this is to take place. Verse three: For though absent in body, I am present in spirit. I think that means that Paul's heart is with them. He is supportive of them in this. And as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you are, here's the when, when you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus. So this is not something one person can do. This is not something even a few people can do. This is something the entire local church does. He says, when you are assembled. So the entire church, the church family, the committed members of the church have to assemble. At Veritas, we would do this and have done this at a members meeting. Where we are assembled as members of the church. Here's what scripture teaches. When the church assembles, when a local church assembles and comes together in the name of Jesus, they have the authority and the power to render these kinds of judgments. Collectively, when the local church comes together They have been given by Jesus, the head of the church, the authority and the power to render and carry out these kinds of judgments. This is what Jesus was talking about in Matthew chapter 18, verses 19 and 20, when he said this. Again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, and if you go and look, and we will, the context is church discipline. If two or three of you agree about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. So that is now who is being punished and who is doing the punishing and where it is to be done. But what about the what? What exactly does this look like? So now we're back to this excommunication. What does this actually mean? Excommunication is part of a broader topic in the New Testament, and that is church discipline. Church discipline refers to the biblical ways that a local church addresses sin. That's all church discipline is. Church discipline is the biblical ways that a local church addresses and deals with sin. And excommunication is the fourth step in church discipline. Excommunication is the fourth step. The first three are taught by Jesus. We should go there and look together. If you have your Bible, flip to Matthew chapter 18. I just read part of those verses, and we'll read the verses before. But here in Matthew chapter 18, we'll see this fourth step of excommunication in church discipline, but we'll also see the previous three steps. And this is, by the way, one of the most important texts in your Bible on church discipline. In other words, this is one of the most important parts of your Bible. On how sin is to be addressed in the local church. I would say the most important. So here's Matthew 18.15. We'll start with verse 15. If your brother sins against you. Go and tell him his fault. Between you and him alone. If he listens to you. You have gained your brother. That's step one. Private confrontation. And I hope you're not the kind of person. That does that every time you see a little sin. Right? It is a man's glory, Proverbs says, to overlook an offense. Right, Don't be nitpicky. But if you see something, it's not right, you're considering behavior, and you're concerned for a brother or sister in your church, maybe it's really bad, maybe you've seen it more than once, maybe it's a habit, maybe you've heard about it even from others, whatever it is, you have reason to be concerned. First step, private conversation. Privately confront them. And this is not every sinner, remember. This is not every sin. This is a, a member of your church in serious or habitual sin. And when you go to him, Galatians 6.1 says, Brothers, if anyone is caught in a transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. So this is done tenderly. This is done gently. Remember what? Paul said in verse 2, why aren't you mourning? You should be mourning. You should be grieving. That's the attitude. John Calvin said, it is the duty of every church to mourn over the faults of individual members as domestic calamities belonging to the entire body. So that's step one, private confrontation. But if that doesn't work, he doesn't listen is the way Jesus puts it. He doesn't confess and commit to change. In other words, step two, verse 16. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every change may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. So step two is a sort of group intervention. This is a group of concerned friends who have seen this sin or they have seen the effects of this sin firsthand. And so they come to him or her and confront as a a small group. And if that doesn't work, there's another step. Step three, verse 17. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. Tell it to the church. Jesus says, if you've confronted the Christian privately... And then you've confronted him with two or three witnesses and there's still no change. And the way this would work is that you'd you'd go to your elders next. You'd go to your elders next. Paul says the private confrontation hasn't changed the person. The group intervention hasn't worked. If there's still no change, Jesus says you need to gather the church together. You need to let them know what's going on and publicly call the person to repentance. First Timothy 5.20 is, For those who persist in sin, in sin, rebuke them in the presence of all. So what are these? I mean, these are escalating social consequences that make it very difficult to persist in sin. The church imposes these on a brother or sister in unrepentant sin. And finally, there's step four. And this is where Paul is at in our text. It's this fourth step. And Jesus said in verse 17b of Matthew 18, And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Gentiles and tax collectors were seen as people outside the family, not To be associated with. Jesus is saying, consider this person not a Christian. And that is the same thing Paul is saying in our chapter. First Corinthians 5, when he says in verse 2, remove this man from among you. His profession of faith is no longer credible. I mean, you say you're a Christian, you're in sin. You've been confronted privately, and you won't turn from it. You won't confess. You won't commit to change. You've been confronted by a group of your friends, a group of co-members in the church, and you still, your heart is hard, you're still recalcitrant, you still won't repent, you still won't confess it as sin, you still won't commit to change. Now we bring the whole church together, we have a meeting, hopefully have you there and have you present ideally sitting in the front row, and then we with grieving hearts, and we've done this as a church, and then with grieving hearts, we all collectively speak to you and say this is not okay, this is not acceptable, you cannot call yourself a Christian and behave this way. You need to turn from your sin. And if that person still does not turn from their sin, then you need to remove them from the church. Which is saying this, we no longer can call you a Christian. Your profession of faith is no longer credible. And so we remove you from this church. You may no longer have the assurance and the security and the blessing of being a part of this local church. If someone is excommunicated from a local church, that means no more fellowship. That means no more calling you brother. That means no more coming over for dinner. No more taking communion. Remember what Paul said down in verse 11, do not even eat with such a one. You may not think of it as an intimate thing, but eating together and sharing a meal and passing food always has been and should be a very intimate thing. And it's something that is done among friends who love and trust one another. He says, Do not even eat with this man. Second Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 6 says, Keep away from any brother who is walking in idleness and not in accord with the tradition that you receive from us. In verse 14, he says, If anyone does not obey what we say in this letter, take note of that person and have nothing to do with him, that he may be ashamed. That's actually the goal. They should feel guilt and shame over their sin and they don't. And so you're imposing these social consequences in hopes that they will feel guilt and they will feel ashamed because what is shame? It is meant to point you to Christ. It is meant to turn you to Christ. So you love this person. You want what is best for them. Titus 3.10 As for a person who stirs up division... You warn him once, then twice, then have nothing to do with him. Knowing that such a person is warped and sinful, he is self-condemned. This person, the way our confession puts it in chapter 26, verse 2, has destroyed their profession. We all damage our profession at times, don't we? We all damage our profession. We do and say things in front of one another and in front of our kids and in front of unbelievers that we shouldn't do. And we don't look like Christians at the time. And that's damaging to our profession. But it is another thing through habitual sin to destroy our profession to the point that other Christians need to treat us as unbelievers. So the local church has the liberty and at times the obligation to bring escalating social consequences into the life of a so-called believer. Okay. So that is the problem and the punishment. But there is one more very important thing to see in this text, and it is the purpose behind all of this. I mean, what is this? Is this a holier-than-thou thing? Is this a we're too good for you? You're beneath us, we're above you, we're better than that. No, absolutely not. The purpose is crucial. If we don't understand the purpose, we either won't practice this or we will practice it with very cold hearts. The purpose is twofold. The first is found in verse 5, and then the second in verses 6 through 8. There's a purpose for the individual, and there's a purpose for the entire church. First, the purpose for the individual, or for the unrepentant sinner. Verse 5. You are to deliver this man to Satan. This is all talking about the same thing, right? Remove him, purge him. Another way of saying that deliver this man from Satan. This is another way of saying put this man out of the church. The sphere of Satan is outside the church. You could read Luke chapter 4 verses 5 and 6 when Satan is tempting Jesus or you could read 1 John 5:19. There is a special way in which Christ reigns in the church and Satan reigns outside the church. Verse 5, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction. Here's a purpose for him. For the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. It is for the sinner. It is for him. Parents, when you discipline your children, that's not for you. That's to make your life easier. Get things quiet again. It's for your child. It's done in love. For the child. The same is true here. It is for the disciplined. It is for the sinner. For the destruction of his flesh. Listen. Better your flesh destroyed than your spirit. Better your flesh destroyed than your soul. When this step of discipline is taken, the prayer... Is that whatever happens to a man or woman's body, their spirit may be saved. I mean, this is the point where you are praying, God, do whatever it takes. God, do whatever it takes that their soul may be saved. Church discipline is painful at the time. But in the end, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. This is exactly what God did with Job. God handed Job over to Satan. He handed Job over to Satan to do whatever he wanted to do for the destruction of his flesh. And you'll remember, quite literally, his flesh was destroyed. And in the end that discipline was a means of grace to save Job's soul. Job Job 2.6 And the Lord said to Satan, Behold, he is in your hand, only spare his life. He was being handed over to Satan for the destruction of his flesh. And then you fast forward to the end of Job, after all his suffering. After all he had been through. And Job answered in chapter 42, verse 1. I know that now, after post-discipline, I know that you can do all things. And that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. I have uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eyes see you. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. For Job's good. So the first purpose of church discipline is to provoke true repentance. It is to provoke true repentance in the center, that he would be removed from the church, that he would begin to miss the fellowship, that he would begin to miss those conversations that he used to have with you, that he would actually miss the accountability. The searching questions. That he would miss singing with you. That he would miss sitting and listening to the preaching of God's word and having his heart and mind filled with joy. That he would miss the meals that he shared with you. And that that would drive him back. And that you'd see him one Sunday. Sitting in the back, maybe trying not to be noticed. Then you'd see him the week after, and the week after, and the week after, until he came before his church family on his knees and said, I've been so foolish. I was wrong. Please forgive me. And the church doesn't hesitate. And everything changes in that moment. Arms are wide. Dinner's on the table. Communion is for you. Reconciliation. Restoration. It's for the sinner. And now second, there is a purpose for the whole church in this. Quickly. It's shown to us down in verses 6-8. through Here's a purpose in this discipline for the whole church. Your boasting, back to that arrogance, your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us... Therefore, celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Paul says a little leaven leavens the whole lump. If you have a lump of dough and you put a little bit of leaven, it works its way through the entire lump of dough. And he's saying sin works the same way in a church if it is not dealt with. It will infect the entire church. If you just overlook it, if you just sweep it under the carpet, it's not going to get better on its own. It's going to get worse. It'll be seen as permissible by other people. And it will grow. And it will. And it has. Thousands of times, I'm sure. Not just destroyed Christians, but destroyed churches. So Paul says, cleanse out The old leaven. Thomas Terrain said souls to souls are like apples. One being rotten rots the other. So we have to be careful. John Piper says about these verses. Paul says in verse 7, Clean out the old leaven that you may be a new lump, just as you are in fact unleavened. For Christ our Passover also has been sacrificed. For a week after the Passover lamb was sacrificed in Israel, the house was supposed to be free from all leaven, all yeast. Paul takes this as a picture of sin in the church. Christ is now our Passover lamb. And our Passover celebration does not last one week, but for a lifetime. The leaven of sin is to be put out of it permanently. We never make peace with sin again. We fight it and confess it. And flee it and never boast in its presence. Paul says in verse 8 that to not judge a professing Christian in rebellion is malice and evil. But to faithfully administer church discipline is to walk in sincerity and truth. And so the second purpose the second purpose of church discipline is to preserve the purity of the church. It is to provoke repentance in the sinner and to preserve purity in the church. Here's how we word that in our church's constitution, in Article 7 under church discipline. Quote, The purpose of such discipline should be for the repentance Reconciliation and spiritual growth of the individual disciplined, for the instruction in righteousness and good of other Christians as an example to them, for the purity of the church as a whole, for the good of our corporate witness to non Christians, and supremely for the glory of God by reflecting His holy character. And so Paul writes. He writes to the church in Corinth and says, you have let this go far too long. I'm hearing about it in Ephesus. You need to take drastic action now or this man may be lost and your church may be defiled. So he says, get everyone together. And officially and formally. Remove. And purge this man. From among you. That he may be saved. And so today. It is how we are to deal. With sin in the church. In conclusion. Some of you here today are. Not Christians. And you're not. A part of this church. Maybe you're not a part of any church. And you're here. And. You've heard the gospel I hope. You've heard the good news that. Jesus came. For sinners. And you're a sinner. We all are. Which means that we have been created to. To love God, we've been created to worship God, we've been created to honor God. We could only be satisfied in God, only be happy in God. But we've gone our own way. We've rebelled against God, disregarded him, disobeyed him, dishonored him, ignored him. Done what we wanted to do with our life. And the justice for that, the punishment for that, is that we would one day die and be alienated, separated from God forever. The good news is that Jesus came for sinners like you and me. That he lived a life perfectly, never disobeyed God, never dishonored God. The life that I'm supposed to live, Jesus lived And yet he suffered and died. He suffered and died in the place of sinners to take our punishment. To pay the price that we owe. To assume our debt. And he did that so that if we would believe this gospel, trust in him. No longer go our own way, but go his way. That we would be saved from our sin. And so if you're here and you're not a Christian... This is what it says in Romans 10, 9. It says, If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the Scripture says... Everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. And so as you hear the gospel today, believe the gospel. It is true. And call on Jesus. To forgive you of your sin. To rescue you from your sin. And to change you from the inside out. Many of you are Christians, though. Most of you are professing Christians, at the very least. Again, Article 29 of the Belgic Confession says, the true church can be recognized if it has the following marks. The church engages in the pure preaching of the gospel. For those of you that are looking for a church. Maybe it's here, maybe it's another church. This is what you need to look for. Number one, the preaching of the Gospel. For those of you who are Christians, it is the preaching of the Gospel that got you in the church. This is how you were saved. You heard the Gospel. And God gave you eyes to see and ears to hear, and you believe. So the gospel needs to be preached. The seed of the gospel needs to be planted. And now that you are Christians, you're in the church, and you're still being fed with the gospel. It is the food that you live off of. So a true church must preach the gospel. Second, it makes use of the pure administration of the sacraments as Christ instituted them. So the gospel is how you came into the church. Baptism, the sign of baptism, is like the door into the church. The sign of your entrance into the church family. Communion, which we take every week, is like the dinner table in the house of God. Where every week, as a Christian family, we take communion together. So we've got the gospel that brought us into the church. We have the front door of baptism. We have communion. We sit in fellowship at the table. The church also needs a door out. The church also needs a door out. Because sometimes. Believers who aren't actually believers. Make their way in the church. And so as we've just talked about. The church is to gently walk and confront. and Be patient. But there may come a point. Where with the blessing and power and authority of Christ. The church says enough is enough. Because we love you. There is the door. And we're putting you out that door. In hopes that. You will be saved. You see why the writers of that confession included that in. These three marks of a true church. If you don't have that. If you're in a church that does not practice church discipline, if you are in a church that does not speak frankly about sin, if you are in a church that doesn't confront you, if you are in a church that won't, with people who will never say hard words to you, if you are in that kind of a church, that would be a great place for your soul to die. And you wouldn't even know it died. Just pats on the back, and pats on the back, and nobody's perfect, and everybody sins, and I've got logs here, so I can't, you know, things like that. Who am I to judge? Who am I to point the finger? No, I would never go to the elders about that, and I'm sure it's under control, and I'm sure it's no big deal, and I probably just, I mean, this is how it works. And so what happens is you have churches with people who are dying. They're dying, they're in sin, and you may have even seen, you saw a sign of that, a glimpse of it, and you just overlooked it. But they're in sin, they're running from Christ, and they don't even know it. And no one's confronting them, and no one's calling them out. They become a deacon, maybe. They become a ministry leader, maybe. They become an elder, maybe. And then they die in that church. And some may then see Jesus and his response to them is, depart from me, I never knew you. What are you talking about? I was a deacon, I was an elder, I was in a church. Well, maybe that man was in a church that didn't believe in church discipline. And so he was just coddled in his sin. All the way to hell. So we, we try to get the guts. To say hard words to each other. With gentleness and tenderness and patience and respect and honor. If they're older than us especially. But we point it out. And we bring it up. Can we go to coffee? Can we go to lunch? I need to talk to you. I've heard something. Oh, that's gossip. I can't. No, If you've heard something and no one else is doing anything about it, you go to the person. Just start with, I heard something. Yeah, I know. Rumors go, word travels. I'm sorry. I love you, so I'm going to bring it up. I've heard something. I saw something. I'm concerned about something. I know I could be way off here. You know me and I've got my stuff, but I love you. Is this going on? Did this happen? Where are you now? What are you thinking about this? What are you feeling about this? Who knows about this? You need to turn from the, how can I help? And God willing, beginning of restoration for them. And they will love you and respect you. If they don't turn, you get some friends together. It's a tag team effort. Team effort. Get some friends together. If that doesn't work, you call a pastor. Say, you need to know about something. Then maybe you end up telling the whole church. And maybe it even gets to the point where you have to look at a person and say, we no longer can call you Christian. And maybe that's what it takes. And then you just start praying and evangelizing and hoping as long as you possibly can in hopes that they will be saved. And from a heart that wants to protect the purity of your church. This is ultimately how sin is to be dealt with in Christ's church. We mourn over it. We patiently confront it. If necessary, we remove the unrepentant sinner from among us. And this is for their good and the good of the church and the glory of God. Let's pray. I'm sorry. First, I needed to introduce communion. Let me read you from 1 Corinthians chapter 11, and then I'll pray. Verses 23 through 36, Jesus said, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For As often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until He comes. So this morning, during communion, we proclaim and remember the sacrificial death of Jesus. If you're visiting with us, you're invited to take communion with us. If you are a baptized believer, and if you are a part of a local church, whether it's this or another one that preaches the gospel, we'll have leaders up front, who will serve you, and then we ask that you take the bread and the juice back to your seat and wait, and we'll take it together as a family. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, these are hard words, and it is one thing for us to read them and even be convicted by their truth in this room, and it is another thing to apply it outside these walls. And God, you know that we will be tempted to cower, that we will be tempted to justify inaction, that we will be tempted to ignore sin in our own hearts and in others. And we do see, God, in your word, how harmful that is for your people. And so we ask that you'd give us courage. Give us wisdom and discernment to see what may need to be addressed in our own heart or in a friend. And then God, make us resolved to obey your word and bring confrontation to someone we love. And we ask these things because our desire ultimately is to love you and honor you and bring you glory. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.